The PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber Cancer Institute laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. We are less than 50 days out from the Republican Iowa caucuses, and a couple of key endorsements are aimed at shifting the momentum in the GOP primary race, if that's even possible. To help us make sense of it all, we're joined by our Politics Monday duo of Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and Tamara Keith of NPR. It's good to see you both. Thanksgiving you. is behind us. We are back to work, and so too are the 2024 yes. presidential candidates. Tam, we've talked before about the ways in which Ron DeSantis has, he's basically sinking a ton of time and resources into Iowa. He picked up that key endorsement from Iowa's popular governor, Kim Reynolds. He also, over the weekend, got the backing of Bob Vanderplatz, who is an influential evangelical leader. Uh, what difference do these endorsements make? it's not clear that they will make a difference. And, and one big question I have with the Vanderplatz endorsement is how, how significant are evangelical voters as a block? Are they voting as a block in, or caucusing as a block in Iowa anymore? Is an influential figure like Vanderplatz still as influential as he used to be if he is telling people not to vote for Donald Trump who has significant support among evangelicals in Iowa. There, there seems to be a real disconnect there. And, you know, the reality is that while Vanderplatz has had a decent record of picking, er, picking uh, Iowa caucus winners, he hasn't had a great record of picking nominees or presidents. Um, so how far this takes DeSantis, it's just not clear. At this point, it's really uh, DeSantis and Nikki Haley battling it out for second place and battling it out pretty viciously while former President Trump is seemingly above the fray and doing quite well in basically every Iowa poll we see in the average of all of them. Yeah. I mean, the the, the viciously attacking is an, an important point because it feels like we've just gone back in the time machine to 2016 when all the other candidates who weren't na named Donald Trump were fighting amongst themselves to get to be that one candidate to take on Donald Trump. And the theory was once it was one on one race, they could beat him, which, mm -hmm. of course, did not end up occurring. In this case, the, the most recent ads, if you're sitting in Iowa right now watching te television, the ads for the DeSantis Super PAC are attacking Nikki Haley. The Nikki Haley Super <laughs> PAC is attacking DeSantis. And Donald Trump's Super PAC is talking about Joe Biden. And so uh, not that I and I also to, to think it's important to note that Donald Trump isn't not taking Iowa seriously. He's taking Iowa seriously. Yeah. He's been doing rallies there. But it is it's this fascinating piece here where Donald Trump is the anti-establishment establishment candidate and that he is basically the, the front runner because he's almost like the sitting incumbent hmm. and has the benefit of that, while at the same time the regular establishment, people like evangelical leaders and the governor, line up against him. But Sam, looking beyond Iowa, Nikki Haley in many ways has pushed past Ron DeSantis as the top Trump alternative. New Hampshire, for instance. Well, and and she has pushed back, pushed past him with the establishment Republicans who are looking for a place to go that isn't Donald Trump. Um, 
you know, Ron DeSantis came in to the race with all of this promise and everybody thought he would be great. Um, and he has spent, and his super PAC especially, has just spent a ton of money and it hasn't gotten him anywhere. Um, and and Haley is sort of riding off of her strong debate performances and also, uh, you know, harnessing momentum as as you head into actual voting occurring. You know, the theory of the case from Haley's people and Haley's team is that she, you know, probably not going to win Iowa, but come in second in Iowa, strong showing in New Hampshire, and then make it to her home state of South Carolina. And somehow, um, you know, somehow they all have this idea that you can pierce the inevitability of Trump. And once you do, then the air will be out and, and you know, then they can really take him on. I, you know, that that is a great theory. Um, but until it happens, it hasn't happened. <laughs> Well, let's talk about President Biden, specifically his handling of the Israel-Hamas war, because he's had to navigate these complex political realities. He's facing pressure from all sides, and it has resulted at times in headlines like this one from The Washington Post. Biden's resistance to ceasefire could alienate youth voters in 2024. Come to find out that President Biden behind the scenes was helping to craft a temporary ceasefire. Right. So I think the challenge in talking about how young voters see what's happening in Israel and Gaza and how older voters see it is that I think for many older voters, this is a geopolitical issue. And for younger voters, this is a human rights issue. And, and it long has been a human rights issue. And that what separates, and in fact, in polling, we're hearing from pollsters who say, we have never seen such a generational gap on a, an issue that technically is foreign policy as this issue, support uh, for uh, sending more military aid to Israel among voters 65 and older is 40 points more than those in the 18 to 34 category. But if you are a younger voter who sees this, the issue of uh, Palestine and Israel through a lens that looks very different than their parents and grandparents, namely one in which race and privilege and access is the main focus versus one that is uh, really looking at this as what's the stability in the region, who's at fault, what does it mean for the rest of the world? And that's where I think even if he is able to uh, have a ceasefire uh, work for a certain amount of time, releasing some of these hostages, those are all things that he can get credit for, but it's still, the, it's not changing the nature of the conversation about what it means to be Palestinian. Tam, how does the White House see it? Because separate from Amy's salient point is this notion that President Biden, the White House, I'm told, feels that he doesn't always get the credit for doing the work right. because he doesn't do the work in a way that's properly politically theatrical. This is this is uh, the story of Joe Biden as seen by the White House. And, and he very much does not make a public show of, of things until after it's done. And then he tries to claim credit, like with all of his economic accomplishments. And then he can't get the credit and it's already baked in. And that's just the story of Joe Biden. Um, I, I think that with this case, um, that people in the Biden inner circle think, you know, it's a year out. These numbers are not good. Um, but it's a year out, and a lot can change in a year. This is unlikely to be the top headline and the top driving issue for voters a year from now. And the reality is that 
most voters don't make decisions based on foreign policy. They pick the candidate they like, and political science has shown that then they sort of meld their foreign policy views to those of the candidate that they have sort of hooked themselves onto. Um, so the White House, though, does realize that they have a problem with young voters. It ties into what's happening uh, with Israel and, and Gaza, but it goes well beyond that. They're working on it. Um, but and they know, uh, they readily acknowledge that this is not going to be easy. Like, running for re-election is hard. Just ask anyone else who's run for re-election. The, the, the sheer act of being president means that you've now committed policy that has turned off people who voted for you the first time around. Yeah, and it goes back to the generational issue, yeah. mm -hmm. because if you see what, what young voters' biggest concern about Biden has long been is his age. And this is just a, a representation of that. If, again, he's in the 65-plus category, not in the younger category. And so his worldview, as well as his ability to connect with these voters, is... That, that, that's a big challenge because of that generation divide. Amy Walter and, and Tamara Keith, last, last word. That's the one thing they can't change, is the president's <laughs> age. Absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you. You're welcome.